Well, hello from Maui, Hawaii. It's time for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner. Happy to be with you. And today to continue what has become a kind of an unintentional series of programs, uh, two weeks ago today I did a program called The Basics of NLP, which of course is neuro-linguistic programming, a kind of a super hypnosis or self-hypnosis, hypnotherapy, if you will, guided imagery, visualization, all the really important suppositions of hypnosis, and then a few others are found in this field, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. And, of course, that program, like all of our programs, is available for uh, listening as a uh, as a I keep wanting to say preview, replay, not a preview, but a replay. It's in our audio archives on theagelesswisdom.com. You can go there and and check that out at your leisure. We have about, I think, 75 or 80 programs up now, all of them free. And if you just go to theagelesswisdom.com, remember the T-H-E after the W's, theagelesswisdom.com click homepage to go inside and then under web teleconferences you'll see the upcoming event at least a day or two before and then the archive of all the past events plus a little tool you can use a little gadget to send these to a friend anybody that you'd like to forward this to you can do that as well and um, so Having said that, i got to bring this other thing up, too. I'll do that in a minute, talking to myself here. Uh, So last week we followed on, and I thought, well, we did the basics of NLP. How about the basics of hypnotherapy? So we did that last week. And then sort of expanding this week, we'll do today the basics of esoterica, or the basics of esotericism. What are the basics of esoteric philosophy? My God, what in the world is esoteric philosophy? What does that even mean, right? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And I have to find my notes because I have it all outlined. And if I don't, I'm I'm afraid I'm concerned that I'll leave out something real important. And again, my apologies for not having all of this ready. I'm really scattered this morning, having had a conference call, and we've got company here. We're going to take some folks to the airport. So let me see how I can do this. Uh, Let me think. This is so wrong that I have to make you guys wait like this. But it's really the best way to handle this. Okay, let me go to documents. I usually do these without notes, but not today. I don't want to do today. Boy, 
boy, this, I feel like I'm really under pressure. All you guys waiting for me, and I don't have my notes in front of me. Ageless wisdom. You know, maybe I'll just do this without notes, and we'll see where it goes. Because this is getting to be too difficult. And I can wing it. I certainly ought to be able to at this point. I think that's what I'll do. Because this is going to take too long and it's not fair to you guys. Maybe I'll just tell you a little story about how I got into the field and just walk into it that way. It's certainly a beautiful and fascinating field. I think, like many people in high school or in college, when I was exposed to philosophy, I thought, well, philosophy just means that Presumably well-studied and learned women and men can imagine how the world works and the relationship of humanity to the other kingdoms and nature and to the universe as a whole. And then whatever is your particular belief system or your particular cosmology, well, that's yours and nobody else has to agree with you and philosophy is after all unlike most sciences and more like most arts pretty much whatever you want to believe and I think that's the way philosophy was taught to me at least that's what I got from it in in, in college certainly in high school and, and to a large extent what little philosophy I was exposed to in college so I figured it, it's just philosophy is just folks making it all up, right? What I came to understand as a journalist searching for truth is that as I expanded my interest in news from current events and government and politics and uh, crime and punishment and the types of current events that makes up most of what people call news, is that the search for truth went, for me anyway, into fields of psychology, uh, anthropology, sociology, education, and I still wanted more, and I went deeper and deeper and finally started moving into the field generally known as philosophy, but what do you make of that? Where do you start with philosophy? And, of course, we have the the three classical Greek philosophers, or four if you count Pythagoras, usually uh, uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle are thought of as a group. And then Pythagoras, um, he was about the same time, though it's not clear that they ever knew each other. I think Pythagoras was a little earlier uh, it's interesting that at about the same time, roughly 400 to 500 B.C., all of these Greek philosophers were emerging as like this ancient renaissance. It's not called the renaissance. It's more the birth of civilization in the West. But you've got a similar emergence of philosophy happening at this same time, four to 500 years B.C., in the East and Middle East. And uh, um, 
you have Confucius and Lao Tzu, who remain two of the greatest Chinese philosophers. You have in um, in um, what was then called Hindustan or Brahmastan, uh, which is now India, East India, uh, the emergence of what today is called Hinduism, and also the spin-offs, which include Buddhism and Taoism. And so the great teacher Buddha, the initial enlightened one, whose name was Gautama Siddhartha, he was a prince, he lived about the same time. Confucius, in the same period, as I say, Lao Tzu may have actually met Confucius in China, according to some legends. Um, and, uh, of course, the prophets of the Middle East, uh, Moses lived much before this time, about 1300 B.C. Most people have no idea when Moses walked the earth. We're not sure, but scholars believe it was about 1300 B.C., and um, the prophet of Islam, the Muslim religion, Muhammad, uh, lived about 500 A.D. But, of course, there was uh, Zoroastrianism and other ancient religions in the Middle East besides uh, Judaism. And, uh, as I say, Islam came along a little bit later. So all of this stuff is emerging about 2,500 years before Christ and much of it religious or perhaps better said much of philosophy spiritual if not religious again I think people who've only dabbled in a little bit of philosophy as I had in high school and college might miss how deeply spiritual philosophy really is and uh, not all of it I mean if we think of Euclid for example or Euclidean geometry, or I mentioned Pythagoras before, his interest in music, in math, in astronomy, uh, what later turned out to be uh, termed um, geometry. I almost said geology. Geometry and the Pythagorean theorem of the you know triangle with the right angle and the square of the hypotenuse being equal to the sum of the square of the sides, uh, that was pretty far out. And um, part of uh, Pythagoras's uh, interest in, in mathematics. So they were trying to define the universe. They were trying to crack the code and figure out what was going on uh, in the world. And what are the heavens? I mean, it's hard to believe, given all the credence that we give to Plato and Aristotle and Socrates as these heavy, heavy thinkers, uh, a lot of people give them too much credit. Uh, there was a lot that they did not know about the physical sciences. Pythagoras, let me take that back, Plato, for example, was under the impression that the stars were little holes in this dome that covered the earth, that the sky was a dome. And at night, nobody was really sure where the sun went away, where the sun went, you know, because most people are presuming that at this point the sun revolves around the earth. We were, we were, and this became even 
more true as the church established itself uh, four or five hundred years after Christ. And as we move through those so-called dark ages up until the Renaissance and Galileo and Copernicus and those guys invented the telescope and said, no, look, it's pretty clear the, the earth revolves around the sun. Well, up until that time, we thought the sun revolved around the earth. But um, and the church insisted on it. But Plato thought that the, the dome of the sky had little holes, little pinholes in it, and there was some incredible divine radiance from beyond that shone through those little pinholes uh, in the sky. So uh, there, certainly there was a lot they did not understand. Uh, Newton's basic laws of motion, for example, didn't come around for 1,500, almost 2,000 years uh, after these early philosophers. But what was happening both east and west in philosophy was a discernment of awareness, a discernment of consciousness, and an interest in a middle position between heaven and earth, between God and man, I'll say it that way, with the emergence of this concept called soul. It's not attributed to religion. Religion doesn't really get credit for that. The idea of a soul existing as a middle ground between the most divine, the most high, uh, what religious people today would call God, and earth really goes to these ancients and is believed to have even predated them. The, they were pulling on truly ancient philosophy, uh, paganism, and shamanism, all of which was, <clears throat> as philosophy often tends to be, intuited. Let me take a sip of my coffee and I'll tell you what I mean by intuited and, and, and by, by intuition here. You know, if you think about it, the word intuition today is a word that uh, doesn't have a whole lot of credence uh, or credibility um, or support. People say, well, I, I think most people think of intuition as a kind of a guess. you know. But the ancients had a, really a, a better understanding of intuition as a non-personal or impersonal source of knowledge and understanding. For example, um, the word genie or genius, let's start with genius. A really smart person is said to be a genius. Uh, that has ancient Latin and Greek roots that actually can be traced to the Arabian dialect. You might be surprised to find this out. That the word genius and the word genie, like genie in a bottle, right? Magical spirit that grants wishes and Genius, this incredible brilliance that some people have. Both of those words are derived from the 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 Arabian word jinn, usually spelled J-I-N. A jinn is a spirit, or a Western person might say a ghost. And over the years, over the millennia, has become 
rather negative, a negative concept that any jinn is um, either a dead spirit or a spirit that never has incarnated and is dwelling in the earth plane to create some sort of mischief. He's up to no good. Uh, that wasn't always the case, though. When these words were coined 2,500 years ago, plus or minus, uh, they were thought to be wonderful things. Like, again, if a jinn whispered in your ear, that would be genius. That's intuition, you see. Where'd you get that idea? Especially, where'd you get that idea that makes so much sense and that seems to arrive with a burst of light and... Uh, uh, an awareness, a sense of, uh, how shall we say, confirmation that, aha, that's it. Oh, my Lord, that's, that makes perfect sense. You know, not just a, an idea, but uh, an idea that arrives with a quality that says, you bet, that's definitely it. That's just got to be it. And look at your own life. At times you've had those confirmation rushes. Not just a good idea, but you thought, oh, well, that's obviously the answer that I was looking for. That's quite clearly the insight that I've been seeking. All right. So they called that not just Jim, but genius intuition. And uh, the genie in the bottle, the whole idea of the genie in the bottle comes from that same concept. Socrates talked at length about his spirit guides as well. He called them daemons, D-A-E-M-O-N. And what is striking about looking at that word is how closely it looks like demon. So in the European Western traditions, you have the same thing that we see in the Middle East, where a word meaning spirit that used to be a good thing like a genius or an intuition, something enlightening, became negative. The Greek daemon became mispronounced and misunderstood as demon and then exploited by the church as this devil-like embodiment of evil. In the same way that in the Middle East, the word jinn went from genius and genie to a bad spirit, an evil specter or flaunting of some kind. Funny how over time, both of these words, daemon and jinn, went from something positive, an intuition that reveals knowledge and understanding, to something negative. One could argue as the cultures in both cases became more institutionalized. It's the it, it, it's the nature of an institution, is it not, to say we have the understanding and you as an individual could not possibly have access to that understanding. This is a real important concept as we talk about the emergence of the Catholic and Protestant churches in the West and the way in which they have competed for this middle position that I'm talking about, the soul uh, that that Socrates and and uh, so many others, West, Middle East, and Eastern philosophers uh, were talking about this middle ground again. As I said a few minutes ago, this is what we're talking about: the nature of the soul. All right, 
that exists between heaven and earth, between God and man. You may already have anticipated that this must be the birth of the Trinity in Christianity, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is really Father, Son, and Mother. And it is, though one has to admit that it even predates um, the civilization that, that we know about, the recorded history of the ancient Greeks or the ancient Chinese or, or Asians. Um, we have a similar trinity in the oldest of all, shall I say, philosophies, and that's uh, the Hermetic philosophies of ancient Egypt. I did a, um, a seminar, a class on this about six months ago. It was very popular, and I'm sure I'll do it again a few months down the road. Hermetic philosophy is the philosophy of ancient Egypt, where the prophet was Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. And you may know of the, uh, the, the, the god Hermes in the Greek pantheon, or the god Apollo in, no, not Apollo, Mercury. It's Hermes and Mercury. Uh, Hermes in the Greek pantheon, Mercury in the Roman pantheon, really the same guy, a reference to this ancient Egyptian prophet, Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus, three times great, Trismegistus. And, again, we have every reason to believe he may have been a real person, uh, not just this Greek god or, or Roman god that lived on Mount Olympus, but, but actually, in some systems, is called the Atlantean. And the idea of the Trinity, or the, the existence of a soul in the middle, a son, a prince, between the king, the father aspect, God, and the queen, the mother aspect, Mother Earth, is found in, in Hermetic ancient Egyptian philosophy as well. well. Now that's pretty far out. One of the principles of Hermetic philosophy, they have their commandments as well, um, somewhat like the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down off, off Mount Sinai. The ancient Egyptians have their green emerald tablet, usually called the emerald tablet or the green tablet. And it has certain laws or rubrics on it as well. One of them being the law of correspondence, which is usually described as the principle that reality exists above as it is below, and it exists below as it is above. And that suggests that everything is a reflection of everything else. Well, as the teacher of mine used to say, as above, so below. As below, so it is above. Above and below what? Does that suggest a middle position? That divinity, or so-called God, exists above something, and the earthly existence, the realm of the physical dense, Mother Earth, and and separated form exists below something, does it suggest a middle ground? And many scholars would say, no, it's just the two, above and below, heaven and earth. Uh, and others say, no, they're, 
that's suggesting a middle ground. And again, if we look at um, Isis, Horus, and Osiris, who is the queen, the prince, and the king, you have earth, soul, and heaven. Again, coming up in the most ancient of philosophies. So, when it comes to Western mysticism or Western esoterica, uh, I think you really have to start with Plato, even though I've already acknowledged that this concept of a soul um, is found in philosophy before so-called organized religion. I guess that's my point. Even before there was organized religion, and people just had their own individual sense of worshiping the divine in all things, in nature, so-called paganism, right, or in uh, animism, in the animals, and the nature spirits, and shamanism, in which certain psychoactive drugs uh, were induced to create experiences of expanded consciousness and, and expanded awareness. All of this is, is is quite fascinating, especially the reoccurrence of the trinity, of the threeness of things, and the importance of the middle element. For it is the middle element of this trinity, it is the middle element of every trinity, where the magic lies. And this is what esoteric philosophy is about. It's about the nature of the soul. It's about the nature of love. It's about the nature of who we are in our relationship between the infinity and the eternity that is spirit or energy and its incarnation into material form. Spirit being the father and the material world being the mother. Why else is God a man and earth mother, mother earth, right? They're just polarities. I mean, anybody that has more than a skosh of exposure, the tiniest amount of exposure to uh, philosophy of any kind is going to get an understanding that we're talking about polarities that God could not be less than all that is. So the idea that God has no feminine characteristic is pretty ridiculous. You know, why would God create men and women if God was a man? To say God is a man is, of course, blasphemy. But the churches do it anyway. Uh, they just figure you're too stupid to, to be able to handle it and uh, that you've never grown up. Uh, it's part of the problem that modern people in this 21st century now are having with their churches and their temples and their mosques is that they're treating us like we're still very unsophisticated and, and uneducated people. But you can understand how um, that which is divine would have to contain all things. You know, God is a man, how could God is a man uh, exist without feminine qualities and characteristics? Uh, it's really quite similar to looking at a, the work of a particular artist and uh, then comparing it to the artist 
himself. I mean, uh, are not the qualities of the painting uh, coming from the artist? Is not the artist contained in his artwork or her artwork? Uh, of course. And how could your creation, your 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 artistic creation, uh, not be an expression of of who you are? So, in spite of the limitations of religion, uh, most well-studied people at any time have understood that the idea of uh, spirit being masculine and physical form being feminine is just a very, very limited teaching model that is not meant and never was meant to be taken literally, but rather a reference to polarities like the north and south pole of a bar magnet. Well, even a bar magnet has a magnetic field around it, a third element, a middle element that harmonizes and unifies the appearance of opposites. For spirit and matter are not opposites so much as matter is a reflection of spirit. That and this is a little difficult if you've never been exposed to it, to think of a physical dense form like rocks and dirt and trees and people and objects being a reflection of energy, uh, which seems to be ethereal and uh, hard to contain. And you, How do you get your hands on energy, right? And yet that's the primary model that has always existed, that that spirit or energy exists infinitely and eternally and everywhere equally present. And modern science tends to confirm that with very basic laws. You you probably forgot that you learned in junior high school, maybe even grade school, that energy, for example, cannot be created nor destroyed. The conservation of mass and energy, basic laws of science say energy will change form, but you can't use it up. You throw a big log on the fireplace and the amount of light and heat that's released by burning that log is exactly equal to the amount of light and heat from the sun that it took to grow the log in the first place. Nothing gets lost. Nothing ever gets used up. This is one of the reasons that we've got to really emphasize philosophy, religious and otherwise, coming coming together with science. Anybody that tells you that science and philosophy will never meet is neither philosopher nor scientist. Uh, They have their own agenda and they're faking it. Both are searches for truth. I came to it through journalism and a search for truth. But science is a search for truth, and ultimately philosophy is a search for truth. So how could science, in terms of physical science or physics, and philosophy, the science of metaphysics, not come together? They have to come together if both are searches for truth. But the point where they come together, ah, there's the rub, you see, where philosophy and science comes together, where spirit as energy 
and matter come together, where heaven, that which is divine, eternal, and infinite, comes together with that which is physical, separated form. It's that interface, that middle point of the Trinity, the Son of Father, Spirit, and Mother Matter, the Prince of the Heavenly King and the Earthly Queen, the <coughs> the soul, you see, uh, that's where the magic is, that's where the mystery is, and this is what esoteric philosophy is really about. Esotericism, esoterica, esoteric philosophy, the word literally means for the few. If you look up the word esoteric, it has a companion word, exoteric and exoteric means for the many like baseball in america would be esoteric would be exoteric <laughs> exoteric right and uh, maybe a, a i don't know what would be an example of an esoteric game you see something that only a very few people were interested like maybe chess. Um, so exoteric means for everybody, easy to understand, easy to get involved with. Everybody knows about exoteric, this or that. But the more common word, oddly, esoteric, is actually the more unusual or rare condition. Esoteric means for the few. So what hope do you have? If you're someone who says, well, uh, I'm a religious person, and I go to church every week. All right, that means you're dedicating 45 minutes to an hour once a week to understanding the nature of reality, right? And and who is God, and what is God, and who are you, and what are you, and what is the relationship between heaven and earth? And you've been told that you have a soul, but not that you are a soul. And this is the second part I want to get into in a minute, the way the church has really misportrayed over the years the nature of this soul. But this is where the magic is, and this is where the power is. So if you only have an hour a week, and, and there are many others who say, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, which means... Once in a while, I'll go to the Bodhi Tree and buy a book, and uh, I like to subscribe to the Yoga Journal, or um, you know, I like to read inspirational literature on the development of human potential or something. Um, again, how much time are we dedicating to it? The reason that esoteric philosophy is esoteric is that you have to have hours available every week. You have to have time every day to study it, to ponder it, reflect upon it, you know, to cogitate, to, to think about it. And if you're not interested, then you can see why it becomes for the few. And most people are not. So here you have religion to serve people who only have an hour a week or less, who don't have the time to study the esoteric. And, and that's how all of that plays out.
Now, it gets a little nefarious here. Remember I said in Western civilization, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Pythagoras were among the first thinkers or philosophers to talk about the existence of the soul. This is 500 years before Christ, right? And um, Plato said one, one of his most profound comments about the soul in explaining his understanding of this middle place between God and man is that the soul shares the ground of God. In philosophy, to talk about the ground of God is a very important concept. It means uh, essentially that you are, you have knowledge of, or you are aware of the existence of God. Uh, a human being can say that, but it's still largely speculation, other than what access we have intuitively, and I would argue to your own oversoul, right? Talking earlier in the class today about jinns and demons and genies and genius and demons and all of that. To say that, as Plato did, that the soul shares the ground of God means the soul is, is aware that it exists as part of one thing or one life. And the soul is not separated. Listen to this clearly now. This is according to the most ancient philosophy. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it's false. It's philosophy. It's for you to figure out <laughs> if this makes sense to you. Right? Rod Serling would say, offered for, uh, for your approval. Um, the soul sharing the ground of God, what Plato is saying, and other great philosophers have said all around the world in ancient times, by sharing the ground of God, it's the soul knows that it is a inseparable and inalienable part of the one life, of the one thing, of the one mind, that is, the will of God, and the one heart or the love of God. And these are the basic qualities of God. That God has a will, a mind, if you will. That God has an emotional nature, right? A, uh, a heart, um, uh, an ability uh, to love, uh, a magnetic attraction of all things for all things. And then the third aspect of the Trinity would be God has a body, which would be the physical universe. This is a very nice model. And you might wonder, well, why doesn't the church tell you that? You know, especially the Catholics, when they make the sign of the cross, they touch their forehead, saying in the name of the Father. They touch their heart when they say in the name of the Son. And the the mother aspect, of course, you can't have women in the Catholic Church, so that became the Holy Spirit. The danger there is it almost looks like the Father is not Holy Spirit, the Son is not Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is Holy Spirit, 
and um, yet they're all God. This is this is part of the difficulty of being a Trinitarian as opposed to a Unitarian, right? Uh, so Jesus corresponds to the soul, and this may be what I'm about to say, what I just said, <laughs> and I'm about to explain, may be the greatest heresy of all. The idea that Jesus corresponds to the soul and that the soul shares the ground of God. But keep in mind, for all the insistence by the Catholic Church and the Protestants, the Protestants that followed, that Jesus is God, Christ only taught one prayer, and it was to the Father. And he didn't say, pray to me. He said, pray to the Father. And he said, I am the way. He didn't say, I am God. He said, I am the way. Could it be that divine love is the way to know the will? That the approach to the Most High or the Most Divine, to an understanding of what's going on here in this life that you don't remember waking up into. <laughs> Most people can't remember before they're four or five years old. We just sort of found ourselves here wandering around trying to figure out what is my existence really about. Is there something invisible and unseen that is the source of all of this? And if so, how could I perceive it or or know anything about it? Do I just have to go to these buildings called churches and temples and mosques and read the books they hand me and believe what they tell me to believe? Or do I have a connection? Do I have a hotline? And is intuition available uh, as a form of enlightenment? Can I attain knowledge of this nirvana? This samadhi, this satori, this heaven, this expanded state. Can I do exercises, physical, emotional, and mental, to still the body and calm the emotional nature and quiet the mind, that I might turn away from the physical senses and more directly perceive the existence of the metaphysical beyond the physical and what my senses and sensations are revealing to me about the world around me. And essentially the church stole the soul. And here's here's the primary disagreement that esotericists and esoteric philosophy has with the traditional, um, I'll say Christian church, although the position of the soul in Judaism, the position of the soul and the nature of the soul in Islam, and also in Buddhism, and Jainism, and Taoism, and Hinduism, is all a little muddied. So let's speak primarily to Christianity here and talk about Christian mysticism or esoteric philosophy from the Christian point of view because all I can give you in one of these classes is the most cursory overview anyway. I, I, I just can't do everything here, obviously. Um, but when I say the church stole the soul, 
what I'm saying is the greatest heresy of all. Millions and millions and millions of people have been killed, murdered, by the Catholic Church in its crusades, in its uh, uh, I'm drawing a mental blank. The uh, the uh, <coughs> interrogation, the um, instant. What's the what's the word? I'm talking Inquisition. Thank you. My my uh, my genie handed that to me. <laughs> uh, the Inquisitions of the tenth, the twelfth, the thirteenth centuries were. You know, the witch burnings, six million women killed for being witches, their property stolen, their land stolen by the church. That's where so much of the wealth of Europe came from, stolen, stole from uh, from people who, you know, didn't want, they, 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 their beliefs were not limited to what the Catholic Church was saying in these times, because they understood themselves to be the incarnation of a soul that shared the ground of God, that within the ultimate unity of the one life and the one thing, there are two parts to the self, an eternal, infinite soul and the mortal coil, the being that the soul incarnates into. Now, here's the primary distinction between esoteric philosophy and religion. In religion, and, and Protestants are included in this as well as the Catholics, upon conception, the belief that we've been told is that God fashions a new soul upon conception and tucks it into the little fetus's body sometime during pregnancy, maybe at conception. You know, as Bill Maher said a few weeks ago, you make love to your girlfriend, and before you light the cigarette, there's three people in the room, you know, right? Every Remember the Monty Python uh, meaning of life? Every sperm is sacred. Catholics are opposed to prophylactics and condoms because... Even the sperm is sacred. It's only got half of the chromosomes of a human being, but it's a sacred thing. And, and these ancient books say you can't spill that upon the soil. Can't waste that stuff, right? Well, <laughs> here's the problem. The ancients have always understood, your ancestors and my ancestors have understood. In fact, the early church fathers, you can do the research yourself. The very men that founded the Catholic Church all believed in the pre-existence of the soul. They believed that upon the creation of the universe, in the beginning, souls were created, all of them, a repository of trillions of human souls exist in this limbo-like place, in heaven, in other words, Consider that before you ever incarnated as a physical being, what if your soul already existed in heaven? What if you are a radiation, an emanation, a projection of that soul, much as a movie is projected from a movie projector? You don't turn and look at the movie projector. You look at the wall. You look at the reflection of the light when you watch a movie. 
and you say, that's pretty real. That that impacted the way I feel emotionally and the way I think intellectually, those colored shadows reflected on the wall. But you never turn around and look at the projector, right? Well, what if human beings, as our ancient ancestors believed and many esotericists believe today, what if our physical existence is a reflection of the soul as a projector? You see, the point being, don't get too caught up in the metaphor, the point being that your soul is in heaven now, according to the esotericist. Your soul shares the ground of God, as Plato said, and could not leave. How could something that is basically energy uh, become physical dense matter and therefore stop being the energy that is its source? And so the idea, I want to say, I guess, not evolved, but devolved during the first uh, four or five hundred years of the so-called Catholic Church organizing itself, there were these several councils of Nicaea. And in one of these councils of Nicaea in the fifth century, (coughs) excuse me, it was decided by the church to pull off the soul. And to start the storyline that upon conception, God makes a new soul. And when you die, if you're lucky, if you're good boys and girls, then that soul may be reunited or may be united for the first time with God in heaven, and you can live with God in Jesus. The esotericist says, what are you talking about? Your soul's already in heaven. It was there before you were born. It's going to be there after you're born, I mean after you die. It's going to be there perpetually because it keeps reincarnating. And it doesn't descend from heaven so much that it, as it radiates out into the world. Now from this comes the law of attraction, so-called, the idea that energy follows thought, that thought or consciousness is our ultimate identity, that we are the awareness of ourselves. We're not only more than our physical bodies, we're more than our behavior and our speech, we're also more than our thoughts and our emotional feelings. For you can still the body, calm the emotion, quiet the thought, even to the point of not thinking, and you don't die. Right? Something remains. You can practice meditation to the point that you become pure awareness. And one of the things that you become aware of is that you exist without thoughts. You can exist without feelings, and you can exist without a physical body. You want proof? you got to practice. you got to practice the meditation. A breath watching, we'll we'll talk more about this in a minute, a breath watching exercise is an excellent uh, way of developing your ability to create this mindful detachment and this awareness of yourself 
as awareness. So the idea that awareness or consciousness is spiritual love, right? Like, what did Christ mean when he said, love your enemy? He didn't mean give him a big hug and a kiss on the lips, right? Uh, or this mean, evil person, let him date your sister. That's not love your enemy. Love, <clears throat> love your enemy is develop your consciousness, your awareness of reality to the point that you see that you and your enemy are part of the same thing, this one life. Uh, the Chinese see it sort of as one organic life. Um, the uh, Indians, the, the Hindus, the Brahmins, the uh, the uh, uh, the Buddhists see it more as a drama or a play. And of course, in the West, Jews and Muslims and Christians see it all as a matter of salvation. That when the soul drops into form. It is soiled, it is dirty, it is bad, and it needs to be redeemed and uplifted to go back to heaven. Well, it's not the soul that needs redemption, perhaps. Perhaps the soul remains in heaven and is doing just fine. Perhaps what needs redemption is the consciousness of the human being. Okay, So, essentially, it could be argued, and most esotericists will tell you, that the church stole your soul, and put itself in the middle position between man and God. So that humans are supposed to serve the church, and the church will serve God on your behalf. And the soul, well, that's just some little part of you like an appendix, some little vestigial part of you that's inside your body someplace that when you die is liberated. Many religious people are opposed to cremation because they think their bodies are going to be reassembled in the spiritual place. Outside of matter, but for some reason you'll need that material body uh, to go with you. And you know, This is little more than, than unenlightened superstition. With all due respect, again, is believed by people who just don't have the time to do anything but follow people who have followed people who have followed people who have followed people from the beginning of time institutions again I have respect for all religion I just see it as very simple very basic and a very elementary approach to basic ethics and values and morals it provides an opportunity for worship and an opportunity for fellowship. But most religion does not provide enlightenment or an awareness of yourself as awareness itself. And to do that, you need to do three things. You need to study. You need to read like crazy. You need to go to seminars like this, but also get in the car and drive across town and go to classes and, and watch videos and and uh, listen to radio programs and do whatever you can do to continue to expose yourself to diverse and antagonistic information. Consciously seek information that contradicts what you know and then seek more information that contradicts that information so that you are forced to read belief, uh, between the lines 
you are forced to think for yourself, and eventually you will arrive at many of the same conclusions. The great thing about esoteric philosophy is we don't all agree with each other except in the most basic of concepts. And I've tried to give you a little hint, a little insight as to where that begins. The toehold for all of this is the overshadowing soul and the idea that your soul is in heaven now and it's happy, it shares the ground of God, it's doing just fine, and it appreciates your experience in physical form. As you develop your consciousness, your awareness, not emotional love, but spiritual love of the higher heart, that that benefits the soul in its relationship with the Godhead or the Most High. So the proper order from the bottom up should be the church, if you will, temple, mosque, uh, teacher, uh, study group, whatever, supports the individual, the human, in his or her effort to know the overshadowing soul that has always been, quote, in heaven or in nirvana, samadhi, satori, whatever, in its sharing of the ground of the Most High, what religious people call God, the philosopher calls the Absolute. And again, the awareness of the soul sharing the ground of the Absolute, or the ground of God, is that it is it is not separate from the Divine. It is merely an individuated point of view, right? Only separated upon incarnation in the physical form. And even then, only in terms of appearance. For ultimately, substantially, there is no separation. And again, through study, through meditation and mindfulness, those are the three areas I got hung up on study. There's also the meditation and the mindfulness. Study, meditation, mindfulness. You can develop your intuition, your innate knowledge, your consciousness, your awareness. Love, not as an emotion, but as consciousness itself. And create experiences of realization that will provide much more than I could ever hope to provide for you with spoken or written word. It's experiential that you will arrive at an understanding that you're an emanation of a soul which shares the ground of the one thing. All right. So the church has it. Um, the soul is a little bit of you, and you serve the church, and the church serves God. I'd like to suggest that the proper... Uh, the proper order, if you will, should be the, the church, the temple, the mosque, your study group, uh, your seminar, whatever, serves you so that you serve the soul, so that the soul serves the Most High. To restore the soul that the church took away, to become aware of yourself as awareness, and not just a bunch of scattered belief systems, that you've never really checked out, but just heard a bunch of times, 
from a bunch of people who threatened you if you didn't believe what you were being told. I mean, that uh, that's an opportunity that life is offering you, not to agree with me or anybody else, but imagine, to think for yourself, to look at some of these ancient models and say, well, that helps a lot. And there's not very many people that think that way. That's why it's called esoterica. But it does form a golden thread that runs through all of philosophy. And as I said in the newsletter this week, it's a nice little metaphor. The soul is the thread, the golden thread, that holds together the separated beads of the necklace but nevertheless is invisible. You know, you look at the necklace, you don't see the very element that binds it all together. You only see the separated pieces as if magically held together by one thing. That golden thread is the soul that unites the one and the many, that unites spirit with matter, that unites the eternal with the finite in the mortal it's just a model but it's a powerful model it's a beautiful model and out of that flows a lot of the principles and concepts of metaphysics and mysticism that we talk about week after week after week in this class but uh, I never did get to my notes but it's just as well I winged it and and went off on this. This is really the heart and soul of what I wanted to talk about. And we can do that handout that I prepared a few years ago. We can do that in another class at another time. So uh, it's the top of the hour. Let's see if we can uh, check some of your uh, questions and comments on the Internet first, and then uh, by telephone. And... Again, you have to. I've got to use two different browsers this week because I just didn't set it up quite right. And my apologies for that. So let's start with people who have text questions, people who are on the web, and uh, who just want to say hi. So first of all, in Albuquerque, we have Diane with us this week, and she says uh, hello, and thanks very much for the CD. Oh, good. I'm glad you got that, Diane. Um, she had requested a generic stress management um, recording that I I did years and years ago called Easy Alpha, and I was happy to send that out to her. And um, I also sent her a stress card. She says, the card is a lot of fun. Your CD is just what I needed. So well done. Looking forward to the class. Aloha. So thank you for that, uh, Diane. She obviously wrote that at the beginning of the class today. Uh, Laurel I. Hatch is with us. Uh, she's one of our regulars and a student for many years. She's in Tucson, and she says, Aloha, Michael. As always, great class. I took your advice from last week, and everything's working out really well. I'm seeing and growing in a whole new way. Uh, thank you. You're a godsend. Love to you, and Doreen, talk to you soon. Well, thank you, Laurel I. We're all God's sons. We've all been sent. Like the Blues Brothers, we're all on a mission. <laughs> and maybe to sing the blues, and maybe to preach, uh, maybe to uh, 
do whatever it is you do for a living or for an avocation, but, you know, to bring some sincerity uh, to life is all I think that's asked of us, to just care about, to love, essentially, what you do. Uh, that's the secret. In uh, Oceanside, Larry Vogel says, Hello, Michael. Sorry for the long question, but my curiosity was peeled, or was peaked, forgive my old eyes, was peaked while preparing for today's class. In my search, I found the name of Benjamin Crumb, connected to esotericism in a book of his called The Ageless Wisdom Teaching. The name of Madame Blavatsky, or H.P. Blavatsky, uh, as you have quoted in this week's Personal Empowerment Newsletter, was also connected to this week's topic. Uh, in 1875, she is credited with being one of the founders of the Theosophical Society, which has apparently splintered into many subgroups. Uh, the concept of esotericism, as it appears in the Ageless Wisdom document by Benjamin Krem, says in part, and uh, Larry is quoting now, Esotericism is not a religion, not strictly speaking a philosophy. It is not an art or a science, but it has something of all of these. Uh, well, uh, you know, <laughs> hard for me to disagree with that. Krem goes on in Larry's quote, it is about the evolution of consciousness. What influences, if any, uh, does Madame Blavatsky's teachings or Benjamin Krell's The Ageless Wisdom have on your thoughts, he's speaking to me, of consciousness and spiritual development? What a great deal, as you have surmised. And uh, yet, uh, you know, if Blavatsky were still alive, uh, Ben Krem is, uh, they would agree that uh, no esotericist, or a theosophist for that matter, uh, would be limited to their particular teachings. Uh, they're just doing what I'm doing and uh, trying to um, develop an understanding of these ancient teachings, sometimes called Prisca Theologia, or the ancient teachings, the ageless wisdom, mysticism, uh, Aldous Huxley called it the perennial philosophy, year after year after year, right? And again, it does stand above religion. It embraces religion, but it's not religion. I like Krems. I like the, I mean, isn't that what I said? The evolution of consciousness. It's to identify as the awareness of yourself. That's who you are. So when you become aware Gee, what is this white liquid? Is it vodka, gin, or water? Let me have a taste. Oh, it's water. <laughs> you said, well, I thought that it was, I tasted it, the physical taste, and then the thought, that's water, is how I know it's water. But behind your ability to taste it and behind your ability to reason, oh, yes, I remember now, and, the, and your memory, there is a awareness. The ultimate in, in oh, uh, it's it's hard to find synonyms for the word awareness and consciousness. It pretty much comes down to those two words. Uh, to be awake, to be alert, is to be conscious or to be aware. 
in Hinduism, technically there's a difference between the two. Consciousness is usually capitalized and refers to the one life being conscious of itself, like God or the Godhead, where awareness, whether capitalized or not, would be the reflection of that consciousness in a given soul. Much of Buddhism and and Hinduism, for that matter, however, denies that there is a soul until you get very deeply into it, and then only in esoteric Buddhism do they admit, well, yeah, actually there is, but we didn't want to tell you because we thought we'd confuse you. And so they're doing the same thing that the Catholic and Protestant churches have been doing. Well, your soul really is already in heaven, but if we told you that, you'd probably misbehave and... Uh, and if you really believed in, in uh, reincarnation and you had a bunch of different lives, well, you, you'd, you'd all be party animals and uh, uh, wine, women, and songs, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and nobody would go about being spiritually uh, uh, advanced people. Nobody would want to develop themselves. That's the arrogance of the institutions uh, speaking. So you're right, Blavatsky was a Russian mystic who founded the Theosophical Society in the state of New York in 1875 with Annie Besant and um, Charles Ledbetter, and that group did split uh, largely around Krishnamurti. Uh, Krishnamurti was found by the Theosophical Society as a boy in India. He was believed to be the Messiah. He was prepared to come forward and say to the world, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior, I am the new Christ. And when the Theosophical Society was ready to unveil him, he came forward and, and proved that they were pretty close by saying, there's nobody to follow, the Master is within each one of you, turn within and follow your own heart and soul. <laughs> Imagine how upset the Theosophical Society must have been to put all this time and effort and energy and money into training this kid to be enlightened and uh, lead the world. And he became so enlightened that he said, sorry, I can't be your leader. The Master is within you. Heaven is within you. What you call the Christos or the Buddha nature is within you. Turn within and know thyself. And... Uh, so that freaked out everybody in the Theosophical Society, and they went in two entirely different directions. Um, you can see this in the little Southern California city of Ojai, where there are two major centers dedicated to one to the old Theosophical Society from the 19th and early 20th century, and the other one, Meditation Mountain, dedicated to the the new emerging uh, Theosophical Society. They also have headquarters. One of them has a big headquarter in Pasadena, and the other one is headquartered in Wheaton, Illinois, with a division in Adyar, India. So it's sort of a complicated group. Then people like Rudolf Steiner also spun off of Theosophy. He founded an organization called Anthroposophy. Uh, his work is brilliant. He started a series of, of schools, Steiner schools, where they teach children esoteric philosophy in grade school. And um, 
they 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 turn out some truly brilliant uh, students. So Benjamin Krem, now he's still alive. Uh, I interviewed Ben Krem six or seven times on the radio as early as. Uh, Gosh, I would say 1982, maybe 1983, was the first time I interviewed Benjamin Krem on KLOS. And a couple of times after that at ABC, and then I interviewed Ben a few times on KPFK, I think as recently as uh, three or four years ago, before uh, moving to Maui. And he's got a ton of books, and uh, he also uses this, a phrase, the ageless wisdom, that many others have used. He doesn't own it. I don't own it. I happen to have the website. Somebody else has the website, ageless wisdom. Mine is the ageless wisdom. But we're all talking about the same teachings, ancient philosophy, right? And no one right way. But it's about the intention. It's about uh, uh, caring about from the heart about what matters to you deeply and that personal quest to find the ultimate truth free from dogma superstition and religious injunctions so there you go and by the way Larry let me commend you I think you know for you to get on Google or to do a little research on the internet before class Based on what you read in the newsletter, um, you get a gold star for the day. That's that's very uh, commendable. And I really appreciate uh, that you did that. In uh, Irvine, uh, Robert says, Thanks, Michael, for another great discussion. Stimulates one to think. Could it be that Jesus might have said, or meant by saying, I am the way, that what he meant was, I am and is the way, or that I am is the way. Oh, I see what you're saying. That the way is I am, instead of I am the way, that I am is the way. (laughs) The way to find God is to say I am and to explore the I am-ness of the thing. Um, Let me me go a little further here, Robert, in your question before I answer. Uh, To become aware of the I am within us, what Plato referred to, as the common ground of uh, being. Yeah, definitely. In fact, there has been for many years a whole I am movement, uh, largely a metaphysical movement in the Western world, uh, Europe and the United States and South America. Um, Christians sometimes will say, I am that I am. I am that I am. Uh, that's Popeye, by the way. Um, the emphasis is wrong. It's got to be, I am, it seems to me anyway, I am that I am. Not this I am, but that I am. And the way I learned it was, I am that I am, in form, but also above and free of form. And I appropriate my personality in service to the divine plan. I am that I am, above and free of form, you see. I am this, like 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take responsibility for the stuff that I own, for my car, my house, the clothes in my closet, all my junk, and my physical body, and my personality. But in fact, I am much more than that. I am an energy being. There's a Catholic mystic contemporary, actually, Teilhard de Chardin, that lived in the 20th century, that said, you are not a human being having spiritual experiences. He said, you are a spiritual being having a human experience. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. And that's a good place to summarize this class today. You are not a human being who has a soul. You are a soul that's already in, quote, heaven, that has incarnated as a human being. That's like a 180, and certainly merits some reflection. Again, we're not going to do what the church did. We're not going to start a war and kill them all. We're not going to have an inquisition and chop off their heads. We want to love them. We want to, <laughs> we want to walk the walk, right? Forgive them. All right, but the 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 exclusive nature of religion belies uh, what they preach. You can't be exclusive and claim to understand the universe. You have to be inclusive, <laughs> and none of this one right way stuff. But there are many many paths, and if somebody tells you no, there's only one path, and it's mine, and yours is different, and you know where that leads, right? Um, and how many Thanksgiving meals and Christmas dinners and seders and, you know, Passover dinners have been spoiled because people started arguing about religion when the family came together. Uh, let's see. Also in Albuquerque, Donna Ramsey's with us today, and she says, are you, are you going to talk about ego along with the soul message? Uh, well, we're pretty much going to have to wrap it up here, Don. In fact, I don't know that I even have time for a meditation today, and I thought I was going to run short. Uh, ego is just another word. It's a wonderful question, but it's just another word for I am this I am. I am the personality. Uh, the ego is the part of us that identifies with the separated being living in a world of separated forms, it is the or consciousness. If the soul is the and consciousness, the ego is the or consciousness. If in a relationship you feel like it's you or me, buddy, you're coming from ego. If it's we may have our differences, but we'll work them out, it's you and me, that's the love of the soul of the higher self. So um, that's all ego is. It um, is the third element of the Trinity. And Catholics call it Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, Protestants too, but it's the mother aspect. It's the physical dense form. And you need an ego. You really do. Um all this lovey-dovey, we're all one, we're all part of one thing is nice in most circumstances, but if you get out on the freeway, you don't, you want to be careful how you merge, right? But the freeway uh, is an example of a place where 
two physical objects cannot be in the same place at the same time or they have a collision. So the ego says, wait a minute, you can't both be in that same place at the same time. You're separate. And uh, there is a time and a place for feeling separated. Uh, but to know also, to transcend that egoic experience and know from the soul's point of view that we're all part of one thing, but with different perspectives, different points of view, to also know that is to approach enlightenment, to approach, anyway, enlightenment, okay? Um, let's see, great turnout today. I'm not, even, I'm not going to be able to do the med. I'm not going to be able to get to the phones. I'm almost out of time. Let me just say hello to Peter in Tampa, Florida, who's saying thank you. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, our dear friend Ginger is back from Greece, home in England. It's late at night there, but she says aloha, Michael and Doreen. Hello, dear Ginger. She was on the show I did with Ben Crum. I bet she remembers that. Robert Fiegel with Irvine, aloha, excellent topic. Have a magical week. Thank you, Robert. Vern in Culver City, can you comment on uh, now or sometime on the concept of oversoul? Um, and can you comment on the difference between Jesus the man and the Christos? Yeah, boy, I wish I had more time to do that. Um you know, Christ is called throughout the scriptures the Son of Man and the Son of God. Again, a reference to being the middle. Christ is the title. Jesus is the man. Jesus died on the cross. Christ is the soul, um, the Christos, uh, the Redeemer or the Savior, the eternal nature. There is a Christ or a Buddha nature in everyone. That's also known as the Maitreya. Um, you're right, these are huge topics, and we will talk about them later. Uh, Theodore the Thinker, T3, is in Gary, Indiana. He says hello, and uh, let's see, thanks for your advice. Uh, Vernon Culver City, Ben Krem is speaking in public today in Culver City. How about that? Three o'clock at Jefferson and, and uh, Sepulveda at the Memorial Building, and it's free to the public. Ben Krem does have this thing about the Maitreya being on Earth, I need to warn you about. Um, and you can decide for yourself whether that's credible, um, just as you should about all of these wisdom topics. But if you see Ben this afternoon, 3 o'clock, Culver City, Jefferson and Sepulveda, the Memorial Building, tell him I said hello. And uh, he's a gentleman and a wise man. And uh, we don't agree on everything, but neither of us would expect to. Uh, true gentlemen, uh, pass my regards on. So that's about all we have time for. I don't even have time to go to the phones today. My apology, nor do we have time to uh, do a meditation. I would normally just extend the class, except i got to take some dear friends to the airport. And that's going to have to take precedence. You can always email me. I will write back to you if you email me.